From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey everybody, it's Book Circle Online. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Lauren Miller. Lauren just released her second book called Free to Fall, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to hear it. <laughs> so I really like reading uh, books about the future because I feel like every writer, every artist, every person has such like a drastically different version of the future. Did you go, how clear of the vision of for yours did you go on before, while writing it? So my goal was to keep it as real world and current as possible, okay. even though it's set in the future. And um, I think I probably would have said it now were it not for the fact that I needed this super cool technology to exist that doesn't actually right. exist. So I just went far enough in the future so that that technology could be developed and then tried to keep it as real world as possible so that reading it, you might forget you're reading a futuristic story right. until there are those little mentions like the earbuds that slide into your ear or the way the app integrates with everything that you do, those kind of things. And like the necklace. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh man. When they said that the uh, mom was in the class of 2013, I was like, oh man. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. To think that you're reading about someone who could be your child was an interesting thing. Yeah. Because yeah. like you said, like if it was in the way distant future, I maybe couldn't connect with it. But like 2013, I know what that is. Well, but the, and the risk I found is that in trying to keep it real world enough, but futuristic, you know, are you being, you know, are you going too far in the future or are the predictions you're making, you know, you're not going far enough. You know, oh, some yeah. people are like, this feels five years in the future. It's supposed to be <laughs> 16 years in the future. So, you know, it's a fine line. And so it was set in 2013. 32? Well, 2030. She's class of 2032 from her school, and so it's set in 2030. Was that something that changed throughout the writing of it? No, I kept it that way. I wanted her to be born this year. So she was born in 2014. Oh, wow. And so she's 16 in 2030. So. Wow. I feel like had this been written 25 years ago, it would have been a straight, like straight up fantasy. Like it's magic only. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what we're finding too with how um, exponentially fast technology is growing, yeah. we allow for a lot more to happen in a short period of time because we've seen it. I mean, look, I go to school sometime and I, I do this, this trivia game, you know, when was this technology invented? And I show them the iPhone and students, you know, they're like... 1990? <laughs> no, iPhone wasn't around in 1990. You know, right. so it's, it's just funny how much we we become accustomed to technology and assume they've been there forever. I agree. Yeah, I still have like an iPhone 4, and some of my friends look at it like, "How do you operate it? This antiquated device. What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're like, so technology is obviously such like a massive part of the book, but it's something that we're surrounded by in our lives. What was like the exact like spark for the book? Well, so it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I've now become this person who's written this cautionary tale about technology, <laughs> but that was not actually what I set out to do. I would say that I set out to write a book about happiness more than anything. Okay. And I, I just became fascinated with, you know, humanity's pursuit of happiness and how um, we use all of this technology and the apps on our phone to make us, quote unquote, more happy. But we've sort of settled for this cheap imitation of happiness. We've settled for a short commute, you know, a good order at a restaurant, right. you know, um, not being disappointed, not being let down as though that is happiness. And so I just started thinking, you know, if we were able to achieve that kind of life, a life where everything goes smoothly, you know, you, your day goes swimmingly well, 
would our lives be better? Would, would our existence be qualitatively, you know, more enjoyable? Right. And, you know, I think the answer is no. And so I, I set out to write this story looking at assuming you could have that happy life. Would you really be, you know, deeply happy? And technology was a way that I could tell that story. Totally. I could make my characters happy by giving them an app that could make them happy. <laughs> and right. then what? You know, so. So what was the exact moment that you said, I have to write this book? So I was um, shopping at Christmas time two years ago at the Century City Mall in LA. Great. Um, being outside at Christmas is something we can only do in California. And there is an escalator that comes up from the parking garage to this sort of open plaza. And as I, I was by myself, and as I came up this escalator, um, I, I, you know, stopped and stared at the sky. It was one of those LA sunsets that you see nowhere else. Yeah. That we'd like to think are nature's beauty, but are probably smog, um, the impact of our horrible air. But this, uh, this sunset was breathtaking and it, it li- literally looked like the sky was on fire. I mean, I can still see it. And I wanted to share this moment with someone. I wanted to like look around at some fellow shopper and just make eye contact and say, oh. like, are you seeing this? You know? And I looked around the plaza and every single person there, even the people who were with other people were on their phones. And I thought, they think that they are connected. They, they are, they're texting, they're, they're Instagramming, you know, they're having relationship on their phone and they are missing this human connection and this experience, this transcendent right. sunset. And so I thought, you know, there's a story there. So you couldn't find anybody just to give you like the head nod. Right. Like, I'm watching. Yes, I'm seeing this yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like when that happens, if nobody is, wa- if somebody is watching them, they're like Instagramming it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it takes us away. I mean, we put, yeah. we put this wall between us and the experience and, you know, we act like it's just to document it, but really we're sort of, we're filtering filtering we're filtering our experience of it you know with our screen so. um so why do you think that we are so obsessed with like documenting it like proving that like we saw this well i think that we are trying to create i mean my guess on this is that we are trying to create meaning and narrative for our own lives and you know by telling this story by creating this sort of image of what we're doing um it allows us to feel like we're li- living a meaningful life oh interesting so I think, I don't know, my guess. I feel like years ago you die and you leave your children and your art and now you leave half finished blog posts and like and a frozen Instagram social account. media account. Yeah, exactly. It's about yeah. right. It's about right. Uh, do they, I, I wonder if like the future is just going to be like blogs and social media profiles of like people that no longer exist. Well, but I mean, the risk of that is if that happens, how do we know if, if the people they belong to ever existed? I mean, I think that's what's so... Um, interesting slash alarming to me about our lives online. You know, yeah. we assume that what we see online is factual and, you know, it, that the person whose account or the person we're interacting with, you know, is a real person. The Wikipedia page that we read tells us the truth. You know, we make all these assumptions because yeah. we see it online. Oh, interesting. And, I like though that the characters in the book had like a, um, there's like a lot of importance on like human contact between the characters touching and yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. like plutonic or like the loving one i was like okay good it's like we're unneeded. still people yeah. yeah we're still people totally <laughs> how did um your relationship to technology change over the course of writing the book um it's a funny question because over the course of writing the book i'm also promoting my first novel at the time and so i'm using all this social media that i'm supposed to think is terrible um 
it, it's definitely made me more mindful um, of the screen and and of my split uh, attention span. You know, if I'm in a room with someone and I'm on the phone, I used to think I, I was engaged both places, and uh, now I see that that's a lie. You're you're only engaged one place, and it's it's the phone because it's closer to your face. Right. Um, so I try to put the phone away more and focus on the moment, a- and also take the the conscious attempt to to just generally look up. You know, I mean, we're looking down. You know, what am I? actually literally missing you know look around once in a while yeah absolutely i know that i've been trying to like put down the phone when i'm like even like waiting in line at the grocery store just to see like what is around me right or the people who are staring at you like who is the girl who is the guy on his phone at the grocery store yeah you'll see those people if you look up because they are looking at you (laughs) i agree and there was so the book had like a massive dependence on technology and then like a backlash against that do you foresee us going in that direction as well or will our relationship just get stronger to technology it's hard to predict. I mean, I, I, um, I don't know. I, but I think inevitably something has to give. You know, because I, we're not going to become robots. We're not going to become machines ourselves. Right. And I think we're always, like you said, going to crave that that human contact, that touching, that that physicality. And I think the more divorced we become from that, the more we're going to yearn to get back to that. You know, you hear stories now about young people sitting around in a room, like texting each other when they're side by side oh really yeah i this is apparently a phenomenon and i I don't want to judge it because you know i don't want to say that my form of you know looking in the eye and talking is a better form of communication but um there is something to be said about you know connecting and i don't think that connectedness through our phones is the same thing as connecting so i'm i I think there will be a black backlash if we get that far oh i love that so we're not connecting without like the connection okay i gotcha connectedness is not the same as connection I think. Okay, I'll retweet that. I like that. (laughs) So tell me, why did you decide to set this story in a boarding school? So I went to Yale for undergrad, and I um, was in a secret society. You were. Much like the one that is, well, maybe not much like, (laughs) somewhat like. Um, How many people died? I would get some scary people coming after me to take me away if you don't see me again. Um, and I, so I've always been fascinated since then with the, the secret society and, and, um, you know, on Yale, Yale's campus, there are these buildings with no doors, tombs for the various societies that have been there for hundreds of years. And every year they recruit, recruit 12 people and, you know, seniors are in these secret societies and, you know, famous people are in them, you know, they, they go back a long time. So that, that, um, organization and sort of power structure interests me. Uh, the other reason that I said in a boarding school is because I sort of always wish I went to one, and I never did. I went to a huge public school in suburb of Atlanta, like the farthest thing from a yeah. northeastern prep Why school. did you want that experience? Oh, I just like – I was a nerd and loved school. Just I was like Rory, that sense of just like wanting to, you know, wear sweaters and read books and drink coffee and um, – at school so oh, interesting it. so at Yale there were secret societies that people knew existed but not much about is that exactly. what you're saying you, you okay. know they exist you know then for most of them you know the name of the society for some of them you know who's in them so it sort of differs you know oh, but in every case you don't know what goes on within the body itself unless you're unless you're in it and does membership last for life for life oh interesting yeah. So. Oh, weird. <laughs> so you have to wonder how much of it is fiction and how much is it of it is real. Oh, yeah. 
So was this your initiation process? Yeah, Masks exactly. To do this, animals. right? Totally. <laughs> Scary serpents and all that. No, mine was, mine was, um, um, uh, much less nefarious, not nefarious at all. Sure. Uh, but it definitely was an inspiration for it. So I feel like writing a young adult novel set in a boarding school, are there like the inevitable Hogwarts, like comparisons? Yeah, is happening? it's, it's, um, fine. I don't want to be too spoilery because there are some, there are some other Harry Potter-esque, I think, uh, elements to the story that people are like, this is your blank character. Um, but I will welcome that comparison anytime, you know, it's to be compared to Harry Potter, even if it's in a breath of a sentence is a compliment. So, yeah. And I feel like it just had every component of like a classic fairy tale. Thank every, you. Yeah. I think that's a compliment. Of course. That. Every like princess in the story has, is an orphan, either both their parents, they don't know one or both and they grow up and they learn their capable the of more. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and Rory ends up being like the daughter of like royalty in the yeah. story. Was that intentional? No, not at all. It's oh, crazy really? to me how things I, on one level I think, oh gosh, did I just like follow every trope and I'm not original? Or are there just things I like to believe? There are things about great stories that um they of sort of emerge. You know, I the elements of the story came together and then it kind of told itself organically and and you know, the decision to will Rory end up to be an orphan, you know, that was a decision I had to make and yeah. I, I hope I made it naturally to the way the arc of the story was going going and the end yeah. result. No, I didn't feel like you were like trying to like check off boxes. Yeah. Like fairy godmother, check. <laughs> but yeah, I wasn't I wasn't trying to, oh, to wow. retell. But I was trying to so the the title of Free to Fall um is a reference to the poem Paradise Lost by John Milton, which is a retelling of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it also, um, the poem plays a role in the story and, and sort of both philosophically and right. plot-wise, as you know. Um, so I did make an effort to try to create a, a mirror to what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve thought that they were choosing more freedom by disobeying oh. God, listening to the serpent, choosing to, to exercise their freedom to become more happy, and really they just put themselves in more bondage. Oh, right. So I did try to create a parallel with this app that everybody uses. They're listening to the app and thinking they're exercising their free will and listening to it to gain more happiness, but really they're being becoming less happy and less free. So I wanted to sort of remind people that well, what happened in the garden, we talk about this, this, this story, it's like part of the human narrative, but we don't remember that it happens over and over again. Yeah. You know? Well, thank you for not making that so like overt with yeah, like no, Adam no, and yeah, Eve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, just a subtle. Eve finds subtle, Adam. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that would be an interesting jungle story. Maybe that'll be my next book. Be retelling. You know? And of course, like I'm calling it like a modern fairy tale. Her name is then Aurora. Right, right, right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yes, that was, and that it, it's um, somebody was asking me about my naming of my characters, and the, her name for the obviously for those who haven't read has symbolic meaning to the story, you know, as it, it comes to a close. But um, her, she was always Rory. She was not always Aurora. So it became, Aurora sort of came later, which oh, is sort okay. of a funny thing. I didn't set out to write an Aurora or to have it have the meaning that it does. It just kind of came. Oh, I cool. like that. little touch at the end. I found that nobody, during like doing book reviews, that nobody can read into like character names like the readers on yes, like social funny. media. <laughs> so much, right? It's fun though. Yeah, I like, like that. Yeah, like the character North, like is that the North Star, Star. like guiding her? It's like, uh. it. or, just a name. <laughs> or is it just a name? name. Yeah, you're exactly right. Totally. <laughs> I love that um the Fault in Our Star is coming out this week, but John Green says Isaac and it's a character who's like eyes are sick. sick. And he's like, yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> 
But that's I love cool that. how it all comes yeah. together. Yeah. So tell me about the, uh, the Fibonacci spiral. How'd you become interested in that? So I actually have my dad to thank for that. He, uh, a couple years ago, it's funny, it was probably that same Christmas when I saw that uh, sunset. Um, he oh, wow. gave me this cool um, framed photo. I mean, I guess they were photographs, I guess, of the two instances of the Fibonacci spiral in nature. One is in the cosmos. Like if you see the... The Milky Way, yeah. it's a Fibonacci, and then the other is in a, a shell. Shell, yeah, yeah. So he gave me the two side by side with, um, with quotes on top of them, and I just, it was just so beautiful and and arresting, and I just thought, you know, I want to use this. I I love, and and I think parallel. My first novel has elements yeah. of this too, sort of the intersection of what I'd call like left brain things like math and science with right brain things, sure. you know, art and beauty. And I love the intersection of those things. And so the Fibonacci spiral to me is such a perfect example of art meets this cool mathematical thing. It's so, bizarre. Yeah. How, and how it repeats all over the world. I mean, or all over the universe. It's amazing. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like when they're like drawing the spiral over the continent of Africa, I'm like, I don't know if that yeah, exists, that fits, but, but then right. like the galaxies and it's, it's wild. It's crazy. Even like some leaves grow like that. Yeah. It's cool. It's, yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> and I like the, you know, for in the story, the people who use this, I mean, Rory has her own interest in it, but the sort of people behind the scenes who are using the Fibonacci spiral, you know, they're people who are very intentional and they like to plan. And so I liked, I liked that aspect. You know, it's something that they could duplicate that is okay. a thing in itself that no one would have to tell you the the combination because it's a thing that everybody knows so you put the pattern there and anybody who's smart enough to know what a fibonacci spiral is can follow the right. pattern I, I like that kind of like slow moving like them as well mm-hmm. it gets bigger yeah, exactly so how did you come up with the concept of like guilt being like a medical condition so um it's interesting so i i wanted to you know this voice that people hear and that that we all talk about this thing that leads us various places that we go and and all that i've just been fascinated with that and and what is that voice you know people call it conscience people call it gut feelings you know as we talk about in the book some people say it's the voice of god so i wanted to tell a story about this voice without you know narrating too much what it is okay and i thought okay we're in a society that's led so much by science and by rationality and reason this voice is the thing that leads us away from doing the the rational thing. So I don't think it's such a stretch to believe that someday they're going to medicalize it. They medicalize everything else, you know? Yeah. And so that, I guess, just got my wheels turning and I just developed the psychosis of it from there. This acratic paracousa disorder is this notion. So acrasia um, is this thing in Greek philosophy that Plato talked about, which is acting against reason. And then I wanted it to be this auditory voice. So paracousia. Um, and I just like the science geek in me just geeked out in creating okay. this voice. Yeah. And it's weird that it was like, it, I thought it was so interesting. It was manifesting as like an actual voice. Yeah. Right. Not- well, and that's, and it, also it's, it, you have to take creative liberties to oh, tell a story. It, yeah. it, Cause that was something I struggled with, you know, how even to put it on the page, you know, do I make it bold? Do I change the font? Like talking to the publisher of, you know, do we just put it in italics? How much voice and personality do we give this voice? You know, I, I didn't, this isn't a paranormal book. This isn't about some, you know, superhuman thing speaking. This is the voice that we all know. We, we talk about it. And, and so anyway, I just wanted to give it life on the page. No, yeah, no, I thought it was like totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then also with the, uh, the gnosis. Uh, yeah, gnosis. 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 <laughs> um, that was so fascinating that they're trusting this business to tell them like where to spend their money. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it just reminded me of like who has read like the Facebook rules of use, you know? Totally. Marissa, Maria. Yeah. Kevin. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was a, a decision I made f- conscientiously. I, I really wanted to avoid this government story. You know, this, the big brother is watching everything we do and, and listening to our phone calls. Yeah. You know, they don't do that in this book. They're not listening to you. You are willingly doing what they tell you, listening to this app. You know, they tell you what to buy, where to spend your money, what to eat. Right. And you think that it's all about you. You think that it's about your preferences and your desires. And, and you've got this great tool at your hands to make your life better. Well, they know that they're calling the shots for your life. Of and course. That's just, that's, that to me is scarier than the government listening to our phone calls. I mean, that for me. And so. at the end of the day, almost like biz, big business is more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also more scary when we're not, uh, you know, attuned to what's happening. And so we do it so willingly. You know, if there, if someone's going to take away our liberty, let's at least like fight it. Let's not hand it over. Of course. So. Yeah, I know. I, I was so, like caught up in the book because for me like I trust my intuition so strongly and then for these characters to like willingly give it up it's like right. wow well and to you know medicate anything that speaks in opposition you know can you imagine if your if your intuition was the thing that you needed to silence i mean no that is a scary proposition but i imagine a world in which are you know people could be convinced that you know you think that Quitting the lucrative career to pursue your passion will make you happy, but that's irrational. So take some medicine, get with the program, go make a lot of money and sit in your office and, you know, do your work and be happy. I mean, I, I think people could believe that narrative, which is scary. Yeah. No, and your narrative, like your road to becoming an author is a little right. bit I'm different. A former, well, I'm a former <laughs> lawyer. So I, if I had listened to my app, I would still be in my high rise in Century City. So um, how did you transfer from the high rise to being a writer? So I, um, soon after I graduated from law school, I, um, just, realized one day that I had made a horrible mistake. Uh, I did, oh, no. I, how did I get here? <laughs> what did I do? I, it's crazy looking back. It's like, how did I go so many years before I realized? Um, so anyway, so I was in my 20s and I just realized, you know, here I am. I, I've, I've reached the pinnacle of this law school journey. I have the law firm job and now I have to do this for 20 years. Oh no. Um, and so I'd always been a writer growing up and I, so I turned to writing to sort of process through um, the sense of where did my life go wrong, mostly because I had met my husband in law school. And so as much as I wanted to regret the decision to go there, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have met him. Right. So I started, you know, writing down my thoughts on free will and fate and, and how our, our lives can get off track and back on track again. And that became Parallel, my first novel. While you were practicing While law, I was practicing law. And you were actually, writing a novel. <laughs> while I was writing, actually, a television pilot. It started as a TV script. Oh, okay. And um, I had some sort of surprising um, luck with that first script. It didn't ultimately sell, but it got close to selling enough that I developed it a bunch with um, a producer who really helped you know shape the story and, yeah. and helped me do some character development. So then when nothing happened with the script, I just, I loved the story too much to let it go. So I decided yeah. to turn it into a novel. 
Oh, how LA of you writing scripts. Right. <laughs> Very LA, but I realized, you know, the, the practical, the practical side of me. When you write scripts, um, whether for TV or movies, you need a lot of people to say yes before anything can come of your work. Yeah. When you write a book, you just need one person to say yes, the publisher. So I thought I'm going to put my eggs in that basket and get that one yes. And then. Oh, I love the way you put that. Yeah. So. I didn't like all that. I didn't have time for all the yeses. You know, I and needed you, to get out of this yeah. law firm job quickly. And for TV, you almost only need one no to like make it not work. Absolutely. Wow. And there are so many people who can say no. <laughs> are you still writing TV as well? I'm taking a little break from it now. I'm working on my third book. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, I, I did ultimately sell a script to ABC Family uh, with Alloy, who you know does Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars and all of the shows that I love okay that one also did not make it to TV but it was a really fun experience so I think there may be another TV project in my future but books are fun for now I, and do you write TV in like the uh, side chick YA genre as well everything I've done so far for TV is more contemporary more character you know character driven stuff but my favorite TV shows are J.J. Abrams you know Lost Alias oh, okay. Fringe those kind of shows and so when people ask for my influences for my novel novels, I say, you know, I never read sci-fi, but I watched a ton of it. And so I think this is a weird thing to say, but I think <laughs> my my book reading, um, the books that I love have influenced my TV writing and the TV shows that I watch have influenced my book writing. Oh, I love that. Um, so. so what are the books that you love? So I am a big, uh, so I love charactery stuff. Uh, John Irving has always been like my favorite author, okay. World According to Garp, A Prayer for Unwin Meany, these really zany, wacky characters. Um, my favorite book going, growing up, which is crazy because um, I read it at 11 and it's definitely not a kid book, um, was The Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. Oh, I've not it's read like that. It's like sprawling Southern <laughs> novel. It's beautifully written. Again, dysfunctional, crazy characters. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a sucker for characters. Um, but in the in the kind of teen genre, I was I read everything Judy Bloom ever wrote and you know was obsessed with her. Sure. So, so is that how you found yourself in the writing in this genre? Me writing in the genre was an accident. So when I decided to turn parallel into a book, I just sat down and started writing from the perspective of my main character. Her name is Abby. And in the script, she was 27 years old. So I sat down to write that book, and the voice I was writing was not the voice of a 27-year-old. It was the voice of a 17-year-old. Oh. And so it just came really naturally. And... um you know, a year later when the book, you know, I published the book and or got the deal for the book and I, I realized people were going to ask me, you know, why, why A? And I didn't have a good answer. So <laughs> I was I was like, I got to come up with something, some like soundbite that I can say. And so I, I was talking to my high school friends about it, you know, saying, you know, people are going to ask me and I don't know what to say. Why do I write teen novels? And my best friend, you know, from elementary school, she said, well, you've always been writing teen novels. When you were 11, you were writing about 16-year-olds in your little short stories you would write. When you were 16, you were writing about 16-year-olds. Oh, it only makes sense that at 26, you'd be writing about 16-year-olds. So I think it's just, I don't know, what they call that? Arrested development? Um, <laughs> I am stuck. about that, like, time of life. Six, yeah, exactly. I mean, but she's in high school and, like, finding yourself, and she feels like an outsider, which, like, ultimately everyone does feels, at some yeah. point. Yeah, that's such, like, a defining year. Well, we all can relate to a teen story because we've all been there you know yeah. you i you know i not everyone can relate to a story about a 27 year old woman but everyone can relate to a story about a teenager because we all getting through high school there. yeah exactly yeah finding yourself and i really love writing about firsts you know first love first fears first dreams 
you know, first discoveries and YA is just the place to do that. Yeah. And I know that's not what you meant by first, but like it being in first person. Yeah. Oh, really, right. <laughs> it really helped like us like discover things along the story. Cause she can't come out and you didn't come out and say, this is Rory. She has brown hair and she's nice and smarter than she thinks. And right. So totally. she learns it and you're like, Oh wow, she's smart. I love the first person point of view. Yeah. Probably because the writing that I did growing up, you know, as many you know, teen girls and guys, you know, writing in journals and, and all that. And then I was a blogger for uh, five minutes. And, uh, <laughs> so that, that combination, I love the first person. It's just it's so okay. fun to get into your character's headspace and yeah. write about it. So, so you've been writing since you were a little girl. Since I was little. Yes. But w- you never considered it as a feasible career. Um, the idea of writing a book or anything really was too daunting. I, I was that girl who used courier 12 size font because long things really stress me out. Um, so I thought for a long time I was going to be a journalist. So I thought that's how okay. I'd use it. And then I went to college. Like I said, I went to Yale and I, um, grew up or went to a public school in the South. And so an Ivy League school felt like Mars to me. You know, I oh. felt so out of, you know, out of my league and just, you know, uncomfortable. I did, you know, I felt like, how did I get in here? You know, I'm, I'm the person they should have kept at home. So I was too intimidated to go out for the Yale Daily, the newspaper at Yale. So you sort of can't be a journalist if you don't go to a journalism school or write for a paper. Right. So the only thing I was good at was writing. And I heard you had to write a lot as a lawyer. <laughs> so I went to law school. Sort of so a what did you story. major in undergrad? Um, sociology, because that was where all the media classes were. At a liberal arts school, I just okay. looked for like where the essentially communications classes and they were in the sociology department, weirdly. So okay. I majored in Not that. to ask like the hacky question, but are okay. we going to see any like law dramas in your future? No, no, you will not. I can <laughs> promise you, no. okay. I can promise you no law dramas in my future. Okay. It just does not yeah, speak to you. No, it does not speak to me. I mean, I would watch a good law show on TV, but, um, no. Okay. <laughs> Escaping it with every, at every moment, really. Okay. So I'm always curious to hear about like the author's process. Do oh. you tell us about how you like write and do you do it every day, every morning? Yes. I, I do it every day and I do it every morning. That's a good guess. <laughs> um, very early. Uh, I used to get up. I mean, I still get up at like 4.30 to write. So before the sun is up, I love early mornings. And kids. And kids. Exactly. Although these days I have a, I have a five month old. So I'm, um, starting later because sometimes I don't go to sleep until 4.30. It feels like. Um, but yeah, so I write early and I am a big believer in the outline. I outline everything, um, really extensively plot wise. You know, I, I let myself and my characters sort of unfold as the story goes, but you know, plot points, I want to know where I'm going again. It's, it's like I said, I mean, when I've always been intimidated by long things and by not knowing where my story is going. And so I just make sure that I know exactly where I'm going before I start. Oh, you, oh, that's interesting. So how much of like the final project is, um, like change from there. the outline? So, um, I, part of my deal with Harper for this book was they had to sign off on the outline. And so I sent them the outline. They signed off on it. I got to work. I got probably two thirds through the story and realized I hated my ending. <laughs> And got stalled and then was worried I would never finish the book. I was like, this wasn't some long time period. It's probably three weeks past. But for three weeks, I stared at my screen thinking, I don't know how to end this because I'd built this mystery and I wanted it to all come together, you know, so perfectly. And the ending I had just seemed so cheesy. And so, um, so what point did you stop? Like, um, where in the story? Yeah. Um, when they just, they try to decide what they're going to do with Lux. So once they've decided or they've discovered what's going on, you know, we won't spoil it, but like what the big, 
reveal is, I wanted them to to tackle it, to try to to, to take it down, dismantle it. And I didn't have a, a believable solution for how they would do that. And I also, honestly, I didn't want them to just like save the world. I didn't want the ending to be they somehow dismantle this whole infrastructure and the world goes back to being the way that it was. Okay. You know, and it, oh, hit my mic. Oh, you're um, fine. In Free to Fall, some of the bad guys get away. I mean, that's hopefully I don't spoil anything for readers, but, you know, this isn't a, a story where um, every bad guy gets what's coming to him. And, yeah. um, because I think that's realistic. I think often the bad guys get away. So it took me a few weeks to come up with that new ending, but I really, uh, I like where it ended up. I, and I actually credit, um, a, a NASA astrophysicist for helping me with what happens at the end. Oh, really? Um, there's a friend of yours? Not a friend. I found him online Googling. <laughs> um, when I decided I wanted some sort of active weather to be involved, um, I, I started Googling and his name came up and he, he was a physicist who was answering questions on listservs. Oh, yeah. So I was like, okay, he's willing to answer. Not only was he willing to answer, he was willing to talk to me on the phone and, and like help me solve my plot problems. So he was amazing. So we think, he's, he gets a shout out in We the, think in your the, connection the, through technology. Yeah, totally. I'm a big, like, <laughs> oh, find an no. expert who can help me. That's so funny. I don't know if I like skimmed the back of this before I read it, but, I I didn't realize it was gonna be such like a mystery novel. It's like two thirds of the way through. Usually I'm reading a great book and I'm like, this is fantastic. I wish it would end. And the two thirds of the way through, I was like, oh my god, like what's gonna happen? Thank you. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a hard book to pitch because it's like so many different things. It could be a family mystery. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. So um the the app and the technology aspect is the easiest thing to sort of make a nugget to to pitch it, but there is a lot more to it for people to latch on. Yeah, exactly. I gotcha. Yeah. So before we go, can you tell us anything about your third book yes so i am working on a book now that will have my you know slight sci-fi sci chic thing that i um (laughs) you know grounded sci-fi aspect but i think it'll feel a little more contemporary than free to fall in parallel it's the story of a girl who a pretty girl who when we meet her will not be quite as i don't know likable every girl is rory maybe a bit of a mean girl but not too much um after a, a suffering a betrayal and a very freak accident, has a procedure to have certain mental images removed from her mind, and as a result, ends up um, losing her mind's eye entirely. So she can't see anything in her head. And moving forward in time, she has to learn to see the world differently without having her mind's eye, and um, begins to discover that maybe... Uh, the procedure altered not just the way she th- sees things in her head, but the way that she sees them um, overall. Oh, so it's sort of an exploration of um, beauty and vision and, um, I guess, the nature of reality. It has like maybe a little bit like The Matrix meets um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, totally. So a little bit of that. Oh, so I'm great. excited about it. It's going to be yeah. kind of like... I don't know, fun and contemporary, but with this neat kind of sci-fi twist. 2015, perhaps? Yes. Great. Yes. Is there a title we could tease? All Things New oh, right now. Yeah. So great. We'll look excited. out for it. Yeah. Until then, where can we find you on like social media? So everything for me is L. Miller Writes. So right. Twitter, Instagram, and then my website is Lauren Miller Writes. All of it is me writing out there. So find me. Yeah. Fantastic. And I tweet from Jeff Masters one. Uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for so having me. It's a pleasure. So yeah. Fun. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. 
I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.